I invite you to stand for the reading of this morning's scripture, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 19. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to, also, to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecute the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace, on, grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to false witness about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, he, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Good morning. Thank you, Logan. I was hoping we might have a, a first time visitor this morning. I've been waiting to get my hands on the Carbaugh baby. Uh, but we do sort of have a first-time visitors. We have Mr. and Mrs. Dylan Barkman with us this morning. So it's, it's good to have you guys here <laughs> and back with us. Before I get into the message, there are two things I would like to share with you. If you were at the Shady Trail service, you heard me suggest that I might challenge you to reading through the New Testament of the Bible in one year and I have decided to move ahead with that so we are going to start that on the first of September as I explained that day if we read through the through the New Testament of the Bible that is basically one chapter for each weekday during the year okay so you, you only need to read one chapter a day you don't need to read on the weekend, or if you got behind, you can catch up on the weekend. And, and that's all you need to read. And you even have one extra day at the end of the year, okay? So next year, or next week, we will be, we will be kind of moving forward with challenging you to, to do that. And uh, 
We're going to have a little fun with it, a little accountability, a way you can kind of uh, let us know your progress, and we're going to hopefully have some very graphic way in the gathering area of charting our progress as we go through that. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Also, just wanted to let you all know that I got a chance to spend some time on Wednesday with Grace Gable. I went out to share home communion with her. Unfortunately, she was not in her room. She was in an activity with an Elvis impersonator. Uh, and I am definitely not an Elvis fan or a fan of Elvis impersonators. But one of the first songs he did was Elvis' arrangement of How Great Thou Art. And as soon as he began to sing, Grace began to, to sing along with him. You know, later, about halfway through, he invited other people to, to join, but Grace didn't wait for that. But it was just so good to hear her singing through uh, that song. It was just, just wonderful to do that. Uh, the impersonator was a wonderful guitarist, and, and he had a really good voice, but the, uh, the appearance just didn't, didn't get it. He was probably about 30 years younger than I am, but he had the same hairline. And uh, he also had the same beard, although it, it wasn't as gray. I don't, I don't recall Elvis ever looking like that, at least not while he was alive. Although, do we really know Elvis is dead? I, you know, there, there was some question about that. Let's, let's come before the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to focus on the resurrection. What an awesome, awesome message that you have given us a message to share open our hearts and open our minds and open our spirits to you this morning in Jesus name we pray Amen. if you looked at the bulletin cover if you you kind of looked at the songs that we one of the songs at least that we sang this morning and what we'll sing later you might think this is Easter Sunday of course it's not uh, but, you know, we, we've, we've been studying in this book of, of 1 Corinthians, and we've, we've gone through some tough things. You know, we, we've, we've, talked about, uh, we've talked about prayer coverings, and we've talked about, about sins, and we've, we, we've talked about, you know, last week we had the whole thing with women are supposed to be silent in church. You get all of these things, and then finally it's like you just emerge into the story of the resurrection. And it's such a privilege to be able to do that. You know, the Easter message seems to fit in so very well with spring. We see things bursting to new life, and, and it just kind of fits in with the resurrection. But we need the Easter message all year round. We, we need it in the long, hot days of summer. We, we need it in this dark and, and troubling time when school is about to resume. We need it, we need it in the dark short days of winter and we need it especially in the dark days that we face we, we need the resurrection for those times when when life seems to be fading and, and new signs of, of life and and vibrancy seem far few and far between we need it for the times <clears throat> excuse me when evil seems to be taking control in our world the resurrection is the bedrock event on which all of Christianity either rises or falls. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock event 
on which all of Christianity either rises or falls. There are some who say it's not really important whether Jesus rose again, whether he, he did miracles and things like that. And, and they just simply focus on him as a great teacher and philosopher. Certainly, Jesus' teachings are far better, far above any earthly philosopher or teacher. But no other philosopher claimed to be God. No other philosopher said that he was going to die and, and, and rise again from the dead. Or offered up a plan of, of forgiveness and restoration and eternal life based on the, his own resurrection. Jesus did. So if he did not rise from the dead, he was a hoax. He was a lunatic. He was a liar. No credence should really be put on anything he said. Everything that's proceeded from his life and teachings is nonsense. On the other hand, if the resurrection is true, it's the single most important event in all of human history. It has joyous, life-changing ramifications for those who embrace it, for those who make Jesus Christ their risen Lord and Savior. And it also has serious and sobering consequences for those who reject it or, or minimize it, feeling to devote their lives in service to Jesus. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul makes a case for the resurrection. It's good for us to realize that Paul isn't really trying to convince the Corinthians of anything here. This church has had some serious problems, as we've seen. But doubting the resurrection apparently wasn't one of them. In verse 1, he refers to the resurrection as that which you received and on which you stand. And in verse 11, he writes, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. We may need to hear what Paul says more than they did. Because in our world, and sadly even in an alarming number of churches, we have folks who don't believe or don't understand the significance of the resurrection. Paul begins to make his case with the testimony of Scripture. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to Scripture. When, when Pastor Dave Scott and I do the release time program in the spring, we use this verse as the memory verse for all five sessions of the, uh, of the release time. We, we, even made up some, we even made up some motions to go along with it. For what I received, I also passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. Now, you may laugh, but after five weeks, those kids pretty much know that Scripture. And it's a Scripture that if we don't have it absolutely memorized, we should know it because it is the bedrock for our faith. Paul's referring to the Old Testament prophecy of a Messiah who would come and suffer to deliver his people, who would die, be buried in the ground, and yet return to life to reign on the throne of his ancestor David forever. Jesus perfectly fulfilled that scripture. Today we have 
accounts, gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. But again, remember, this letter preceded those writings. The gospels detailed the life and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke were all written within 40 years of Jesus' death. John was written a good bit later. But they were written in a time when there were many eyewitnesses to the event that they recorded who were still living. Consider this. 42 years ago, then Prince Charles and Lady Diana were married. If someone today would sit down and write a completely false account of that event, eyewitnesses and those who are familiar with that event would rise up and immediately prove that writing false. The Gospels gained almost immediate acceptance. There are no early writings challenging the facts that they present. And that's surprising, given the immediate attempts by officials in Jerusalem to cover up the resurrection by saying that the disciples stole his body. We have that recorded in Matthew 28. Paul also points to the testimony of eyewitnesses. He lists Peter, the twelve, five hundred unnamed believers, James, all of the apostles, and, and even himself as witnesses to the risen Christ. He puts his own encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus on a par with his other appearances. And he mentions that many of these eyewitnesses are still alive as he writes. His account can be checked out by the skeptics. It amazes me that, that some people still insist that the disciples simply made up the story. What did the disciples do when Jesus was arrested? What did they do? They ran away. Why? They were afraid. They didn't, they didn't want to share in, in, in the suffering and death he was going through. But if Jesus had not risen from the dead, all the disciples had to do was lay low, keep quiet. Let things cool down. Go, go back to their families. Go back to their homes. Go back to their, their fishing or whatever their occupation was. They were in the clear. Their insistence that Jesus rose from the dead only put their lives back in danger. It caused them to be persecuted and imprisoned, and eventually it cost all but one of them their lives. Would you do that for a lie? None of the other disciples ever recanted. They were martyred and went to their death, still proclaiming Jesus as the risen Son of God. The third testimony is kind of implied in what Paul writes. It's the testimony of transformation. It was through the message of the resurrection that they had been saved. It was this message that had transformed their lives and allowed them to stand firm in its truth. If you're completely unimpressed by eyewitness and historical accounts, consider the impact that this message has had on individual lives and on the world as a whole in the last 2,000 years. More impact, more, more transformation than any other event or any other message ever given. The central tenet of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How could that transform lives if, in fact, Jesus is dead? In verses 12 through 19, Paul writes about life without the resurrection. There is no resurrection. Jesus is still dead. I think I shared this probably a time or two before. 
But, but a few years ago, an archaeologist claimed to have found the burial box of Jesus under some buildings in Jerusalem, complete with what he said were Jesus' bones. The whole thing blew over very quickly, so I assume that his claims didn't hold up. But a friend of mine in ministry who had led several uh, trips to Israel received a email from a Jewish guide who he was good friends with. And the friend humorously suggested that in light of this discovery, he must be looking for a new profession. While he wasn't serious and had skeptical and was skeptical of this find himself, his point was well taken. If Jesus' bones are in a box in Jerusalem, we need, some of us need to find a new profession. And all of us need to find a new faith. Without the resurrection, sharing the gospel is useless. In fact, Paul says... We're false witnesses and liars. We're propagating a lie because the resurrection is central. It's the culmination of all that the Gospels teach. Without the resurrection, the rest is just window dressing. It's empty philosophy, devoid of power, and there's no point in sharing it with anyone. Without the resurrection, your faith is a meaningless delusion. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Without the resurrection, whatever faith we have is in a dead God. Any confidence that we have for the future is misplaced. We have no security, no rock, no fortress. We have no one who we can turn to in times of need for strength and comfort and healing. If Jesus is not alive, we're just as deluded as the world may at times claim we are. And without the resurrection, we're still under judgment for our sins. I've, I've heard, and this is longer ago, but I've heard and been part of discussions where this question came up. Wouldn't our sins be covered even if Jesus hadn't risen? After all, it was his death that paid the price for our sins. There's a song in our hymnal, which you may have sung before, although you have not sung it since I've been here because I won't sing it. It's called, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And the verses are probably fine, but the chorus reads... I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You see the problem. We're told here in the scripture, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sin. Without a risen Savior to deliver us and to be our advocate, we're still under the condemnation and the power of sin. It's essential that Jesus died for our sins, but it is not enough. It is not enough without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's no hope for eternal life. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost because he's still dead. And the rest of us soon will be. We have no hope of being reunited with loved ones. Those wonderful scenes of, of life and worship in heaven are apparently for some other beings. They're, they're not for us. Death is the end. There is nothing else. And Paul describes this as a miserable, pitiful existence. And he says if we've put our hope in a dead Savior, we're to be pitied even more than most. Verse 32 says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There was a, an old song many years ago with the words, if that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. A rather bleak picture, this life without the resurrection, isn't it? 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It's a, it's a historical fact that we need to take hold of just as the early church did. So we don't fall into that lifeless, powerless, joyless life that we see in churches that no longer proclaim the resurrection, that no longer hold to the resurrection power at work in their lives. In verses 20 through 28, Paul gives us some implications of that resurrection, and I'm going to read that. Verses 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then, God, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Kind of interesting scripture. In the grand scheme of God's plan, the resurrection is a reversal of the fall. When God created mankind and placed them back in Eden, we were eternal beings, and we walked in face-to-face communication with God. But Adam and Eve sinned, and as a result, death became part of our experience and separation from God. We're all born as children of Adam. We fall quite easily and naturally into sin, so we all face death as well. But Jesus died and rose again to remove the curse of the sin that Adam brought into this world and to reverse the consequences of sin, death and separation from God. We're made right with God. The door is opened again to eternal life. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We're told that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection to come. Apparently the sacrificing of first fruits was common not just to the Jews but also to other religions and the idea was not just that these were the the first fruits to ripen but they also made the rest of the harvest possible they paved the way for what was to come Jesus is not merely the first to be resurrected in such a way that he will never face physical death again he makes the resurrection of those who follow him us possible. He paves the way to eternal life for all of us. The physical resurrection will happen when he comes again. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes the point that while we're at home in this body, we are away and not at home with the Lord. When we no longer are part of this body, when this body dies, then we will be at home with the Lord. When when we leave these bodies, we don't have to wait for the second coming to be with Christ. We are ushered into the presence of God, I think, by Jesus Christ at that time. However, when Jesus returns, there will be a physical resurrection. And we'll talk about that more next week 
as we complete this book also on the resurrection, or this chapter, I should say, not the book. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. After Jesus has put all enemies and everything else under his feet, death too will be destroyed. In heaven there will be no death. No, no sickness, no sorrow. There will be no reason even for the shedding of the tear. And this is a step in the return to God the Father as all in all. A return to God the Father as all in all. When our risen Savior has completed and conquered everything, He will, and I'm quoting here from the New Living Translation, He will present Himself to God so that God who gave His, his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. For now, the Father has given the Son authority over everything, to bring everything in subjection under Christ. When he has accomplished that, he will step back under his Father's authority so that once again, God the Father will be all in all. And in verses 39, or 29 through 34, we have the stimulus of the resurrection. You remember stimulus checks, right? Those checks that the government sent out during COVID to, to stimulate the economy, you know, Borrow it, print it, whatever you have to do, get it in people's hands, see what it stimulates. What should the resurrection stimulate in us? Again, let's read verses 29 through 34. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ, Jesus our Lord. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. With no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I think first here, we see a demonstrated concern for the salvation of others. Now, verse 29 is rather difficult with its reference to people being baptized for the dead. And we don't know quite what to make of that. This is the only place where it mentions this in Scripture. It's not commanded. It's not encouraged. And as we read other Scripture, we see no way that that fits in with God's plan in such a way that it would actually lead to salvation for anyone. But to me, the point here is that because of the resurrection, that because there is life after this life, we need to be vitally concerned about the salvation of others. There is a time for judgment when this life is over. But through Jesus Christ, there is an opportunity now for forgiveness. There is opportunity now for a personal relationship with Christ. There is an opportunity to now to tie into eternal life. So now is the time for us as followers of Jesus Christ to reach out in God's love and grace and mercy with the message of salvation. We're told that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. It's not our job either. Helping others to find salvation is. Along with that comes sacrificial service so that others may come to know Jesus. 
Paul points to the resurrection as the motivation behind the sacrifices that he makes on a daily basis. The dangers, the persecution, the struggles that he endures so that others can hear the gospel, so that others can come to know Christ. I'm sure Peter and John and the other disciples would share a similar motivation for their service. What are we willing to sacrifice so that others may come to know Him? And last, Paul speaks to lives that are kept free of sin. In church speak, we call this sanctification. Becoming more and more like Jesus. Allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal in us the things that are not in accord with the character of God and eliminating those things from our lives. John writes this about the hope of the resurrection. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in them purify themselves just as He is pure. We need to take hold of the hope of the resurrection. Because without that, Dark and lifeless days may threaten to overwhelm us. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and in so doing, He's paved the way for our resurrection. Our faith is not a meaningless delusion. Sin and death no longer have power over us, and our hopes for eternal life are sure, and they will be realized. Sharing the message of salvation with others is not useless. We should be concerned about the salvation of others. And we should be willing to make sacrifices so that they may come to know Him. And we should be striving for purity in our lives. We should be striving to be more and more like Jesus who made all of this possible. We need to live in the here and now with the hope of the resurrection always before us. Let me say that again. We need to live in the here and now with the hope of the resurrection always before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we do serve a risen Savior. You did die for our sins, but you also rose again. And that is our hope. It's the hope in this life. It's the hope for the life to come. So we thank you and we praise you for the resurrection. And we pray that we would allow you to be real and powerful as Lord and Savior of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.